What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. It's December 8th, 1980, shortly after 8 p.m. in Los Angeles. Harry Nilsson is in a Santa Monica studio, producing a session for Frank Stallone. Harry has recently moved into his house in Bel Air, an architectural showpiece he and his wife Una had built to order, and one of his neighbors is Sylvester Stallone, Frank's older brother. Frank and Harry have become friends, thus tonight's session. Now, it's a Monday, so there's a TV tuned into Monday Night Football. The Dolphins-Patriots game is about to go into overtime. Harry went out to give instructions, and it came over the TV. That's Mark Hudson, the producer of Harry's final album, Lost and Found, who was there that night along with Van Dyke Parks, drummer Jim Keltner, and others. Howard Cosell had broken the news on Monday Night Football that John Lennon had been shot outside his apartment, the Dakota, in New York City. The engineer called everyone in the studio and all came in, and they said John had been shot. And as he was walking through the vestibule, this individual fired five shots from a 38 caliber charter arms pistol. Mr. Lennon was struck several times. He went up the stairs that lead up into the watchman's area of the uh, Dakota. He went through that area into an office inside where he uh, collapsed to the floor. A radio car responded to this location and took him to Roosevelt Hospital. John Lennon was brought to the emergency room of the Roosevelt site, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, this evening, shortly before 11 p.m. He was dead on arrival. We were glued to the TV, and there was not an expression on anyone's face. And then when they said that he had passed away, Harry looked at me, and it wasn't a scream, but it was sort of like... If your inner child could just go, no, this incredible pain. And he ran out of the studio. I ran out after him and he ran down the street, like just running. I'm Joe Levy. And you're listening to Final Sessions, Harry Nilsson's Lost and Found. Today, we're taking a look at Harry's relationship to the Beatles and how the death of John Lennon nearly stopped him cold. This is episode two. There's no more yesterday. Now, to understand why John Lennon's death affected Harry so deeply, you have to understand just how important the Beatles were to Harry and the ways in which they opened up possibilities for him time and again. Early on, before Harry had signed to RCA, he heard them as competition. And maybe that's because they drew on some of the elements outside of the worlds of rock and R&B, all that music of the past that rock and roll was supposed to have swept away, in a way that Harry did too. Here's how he saw it. 
I was still working at the bank, and I, I hated the Beatles because I said, oh, shh, you know, they're beating me to the punch. And then there was that moment when you say, well, you're either with them or against them. And I decided to go for the latter, and I said, yeah, they really are that good. Once he was on board, he was on board all the way. We'd be arguing about the Beatles, and he'd say, the Beatles are the only band. There's only one band, that's the Beatles. No one else matters. That's singer and songwriter Jimmy Webb, Harry's longtime friend. Harry covered two Beatles songs on Pandemonium Shadow Show, his first album for RCA, in 1967. There was You Can't Do That, which the Beatles had recorded in 1964, and the brand new She's Leaving Home, which Harry recorded just two weeks after the release of Sgt. Pepper's, which takes some balls. Now, when the album was out in the U.S., but before it had come out in the U.K., the Beatles' press officer, Derek Taylor, bought an entire box of Pandemonium Shadow Show to give to his friends. And sometime after that, Harry's phone rang early one morning. So one day I was uh, early, it was five in the morning, I got a phone call and there's this voice long distance. Hello, hello, who is it? It's John, John who? It's John Lennon. Is this really John? He says, yeah, I just wanted to say you're fantastic, man. But listen to you all weekend, you know, he's great, great, great. You know, he's fantastic. Uh, the following Monday, I got a phone call from Paul. How are you? Just calling to say you're fantastic. You know, he's just, oh, you're great, you know, and uh, really love what you did and all that stuff. You know, Derek played it for us and hope to see you soon. And you know, clunk. The next Monday morning, I get up, comb my hair, five o'clock in the morning, waiting for a call from Ringo. There was no call. Harry and John first met in 1968, and their bond was both immediate and deep. In May of 68, Lennon and McCartney were at a press conference in New York to talk about this new company they had formed, Apple. And someone asked Lennon to name his favorite American group and influences, and Lennon's reply was, everything influences everything. Nilsson's my favorite group. Asked later who their favorite American artist was, they both gave the same answer. Nilsson. Harry looked at that as the greatest compliment ever paid to him in his life, that they said that. And then you started to hear their influence on his music. Me and my arrow. Fool on the Hill. You could see their influence taking over. And he loved them. They loved him and his sense of humor and his sense of hairiness. They loved him. A month after that press conference, in June of 1968, the Beatles invited Harry to come to England for a long weekend during the recording of the White Album. Harry's first night there was spent at Lennon's house. They stayed up till dawn, with a little help from our friends, as Harry put it later, slyly. They were just talking. The subjects, according to Harry, were marriage, life, death, divorce, women. John was separated from his first wife, Cynthia, and living with Yoko Ono, who fell asleep curled up with him while the two men talked. For his part, Harry had split with his first wife, Sandy, the year before. John was 27, and so was Harry. He'd arrived in London on June 14th, and his birthday was June 15th, so he turned 27 while the two of them were talking. Harry remembered John asking him, What's it all about? What are we doing, do you think, Harry? I'm just writing these little songs like you're writing. Like Mr. Richland's favorite song from your new album? I wish I'd written it. It's great. 
Now, it's worth noting that in Mr. Richland's favorite song, Harry quotes a bit of Lewis Carroll from Through the Looking Glass. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things. Since John had declared that he was the walrus, think of it as Harry tipping his hat to John, who then tells him that the song is so good, he wishes he'd written it. And to complete the effect, when Harry leaves, John gives him the coat he wore on the cover of Magical Mystery Tour as a gift. You can hear Mr. Richland's favorite song on the companion playlist to this show. It's linked in our show notes. Now, Harry came to know all of the Beatles. George and Ringo both recorded with him, and Ringo was one of his very closest friends, the best man at his third wedding. But his relationship with John Lennon was crucial and in many ways defining. Harry idolized John, you know, as you would, and uh, John was somebody to idolize. That's Jim Keltner who played on both Harry and John's albums and is one of the three drummers who played on the album John produced for Harry in 1974, Pussycats. That was fantastic. That was at a record plant in the new room. And it was tremendous fun because they had Ringo and me playing together and Ringo and I played together real good. And then Keith Moon, I forget how he ended up there, but somebody said, let's have three drummers. And so... You know, it was just crazy. It was it was so much fun. You know, talk about a party. That record, I can barely remember details of that record. Barely remember because this was a time known as the Lost Weekend, except it lasted 18 months. In the fall of 1973, John Lennon separated from his wife, Yoko Ono, and went to Los Angeles, where Harry introduced him to Brandy Alexander's, which is cognac, cream, and creme de coco. They called them milkshakes. They had a lot of milkshake-fueled misadventures, which included getting thrown out of the Troubadour during a Smothers Brothers show when they simply would not stop heckling the comedy duo. Harry just was sort of a a troublemaker. Like, if you wanted to start trouble, Harry could do it. And there was one time we were at the Rainbow, and it was my brothers and I, John, Lennon, and Harry. And we were getting blasted. And in walked Three Dog Night, Chuck Negron with his mustache and Danny with his big hair. Like, there they were. And they walk up to our table... And he goes, hey, and he goes, yeah, hey. And then Chuck Negron goes, Harry, isn't that great? Your song, One is the Loneliest Number. It was a number one record for us. Harry takes a puff of the cigarette, looks up at him and goes, yeah, maybe next time you'll sing the last note in f- tune. And, and, they, and they went like, <gasps> and Lennon tried to make, oh, well done, boys, good number one. And it was kind of cute to see Lennon try to cover for Harry. Oh, where to go? In March of 1974, Lennon rented a house on the beach in Santa Monica. Side note, this house used to belong to Peter Lawford, and it's the same one he lent to John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert when they were meeting up with Marilyn Monroe. Anyway, John began producing an album for Harry, who also took up residence in the Santa Monica house with his wife-to-be Una, as well as Ringo Starr, Keith Moon, and bassist Klaus Vorman. 
Ringo called it the first commune he'd ever lived in. Oh, Lord! What is it? I'm full of it! Good! Tonight! Right! Pussycats is a wonderful and demented record. Its theme song is probably All My Life, where Harry sings about shooting them up, drinking them down, taking them pills, and being so tired of bad times, he'll have to change his ways. But the Pussycat sessions are also where Nilsson damaged his voice, losing the top end of that remarkable three-and-a-half-octave range. According to Jim Keltner, the trouble started not in the studio, but at the Santa Monica Rock and Roll Commune. Harry always wanted to be able to uh, scream like John. You know, John had one of the best rock and roll screams of all time. And Harry wanted that. He wanted to uh, be able to do that. And it's my understanding, because I wasn't there, I I tried to uh, minimize my trips to the beach when they were all living out uh, in Santa Monica at the beach. It just was a little too much. But I heard that one of the nights that I wasn't there, they all got whacked out, and John and Harry went out on the beach early in the morning, you know, while it was still dark probably, and John was teaching him how to scream at the top of his lungs. So the next thing they knew was that they woke up on the beach, you know, with the sun blaring down, and uh, Harry couldn't speak. So... You know, it scared him, of course. Then later on, you know, when he got his voice back, he had lost the high end, that beautiful angelic uh, tenor. Jim Keltner was also in the studio with Harry on December 8th, 1980, the night that John Lennon was assassinated. It was just a black moment. There's just no other way to explain it except that everything just turned black. I just don't remember anything. Harry and I took off in a limo, and that's all I remember, unfortunately. Until I got home. The effect of Lennon's death on Harry was profound and life-changing. It was so traumatic, and it was just a facial reconstruction, I guess, after that point. Mandible trauma. Like diving into a windshield. That's Van Dyke Parks, who was also there that black night in December 1980 and who worked with Harry on the music for the Robert Altman movie Popeye, which had just been released, and also on the album Flash Harry, which had come out earlier that year. Flash Harry contained Nielsen's version of a song called Old Dirt Road, which he'd written with John Lennon years before, and which Lennon had recorded on his album Walls and Bridges. Flash Harry was also the last album Nielsen released during his lifetime. After John Lennon was killed, Harry threw himself into political activism, organizing for gun control. I called him times after that, and he didn't pick up. And then he called me. He goes, you know, I want you to be involved in my anti-gun campaign. And he you know, had the, the buttons, which was like a thirty-eight caliber, you know, with the red circle and the slash through it for gun control. And we'd go up to his house, and everybody, you know, all huge actors, you know, Penny Marshall and Jimmy Webb, like all these people would show up for this anti-gun thing. And he pushed that as much as he possibly could because he never really got over it. We were talking once, having coffee, and I went, I can't listen to his music. After John was murdered, I could not put on his music. And Harry said, me too. And I can't write. 
They would all come on, Harry. We can always write. Let's write something about John. He goes, no. They took him away from me, which took something else away from me. It's just no good anymore since you went away. Now I spend my time just making rhymes of yesterday. Hudson says that Harry stopped writing songs, at least for a while, though he kept after Harry to get back to it. I bothered him constantly, and he would come to my studio where I was living, and we would hang out. And every time we'd hang out, I'd always force him into telling the story that he would want to talk about. You know, tell me something about Brooklyn. Tell me about when you went to John's house and how that changed your life. And all of a sudden, he started doing that. And just in the sound of his voice, I could hear his excitement. This is the demo of the very first thing Mark coaxed Harry into recording, a big bouncing pop song called Try, about how nothing is out of reach. And all of a sudden, the the thing of just keep trying. Run, run, run. First you walk and then you run. And it was like it turned him on. And we wrote the song. And we did the demo on a Tascam 8-track. There are allusions to two Beatles songs in the lyrics to Try. All You Need Is Love and With a Little Help From My Friends. And it should be noted that Hudson who went on to produce nine albums for Ringo Starr, describes the studio they were working in as a veritable Beatles museum. Pictures everywhere. Hofner bass. I mean, it's like you could go in there and you guys are like, is Macker here? Is Macker here? Because it was, and Harry would see, he goes, see that picture there? And he goes, yeah. I think it was Lennon in Central Park. And Harry goes, I was there when they shot that. Yeah, I was just off to the side. Once Hudson had convinced Harry to record a few things, Harry started to share other songs he'd been working on. We'd always go in his car that he called The Beast, and he would have, like, cassettes. And we went to the Santa Monica Pier, and we would walk arm-in-arm, because at that point, he wasn't in physical great shape. We walked out onto the pier. The sun's going down, and Harry takes a puff of cigarettes, flicks it out, looks at me and goes, can I ask you something? And I went, yeah, sure, what? And he goes... Why do you think they didn't ask me? And I went, well, what do you, I know what you're talking about. What do you mean? He goes, the Beatles. Why didn't they ask me to replace John? And I went, oh, Harry, and this is with all due respects to you, there is no replacing John Lennon. And it's true, they love you. Yes, it is. But I think once something like that happens, they're not going to get another version to be him. Don't take it personal because you know that they love you and all that. I just don't think that that's in the cards. Anyway, okay, let's go give some homeless people money. And we walked back with him giving $20 to every homeless guy that he saw on the pier. And he was struggling for money at that time. He goes, I don't care what you spend it on. Just have a good time. I think that was sort of the end of his, his beetle frustration, if you want to put it down to that. Maybe an end to some of the pain, but not the reverence. Four of the ten songs on Lost and Found contain explicit references to the Beatles or John Lennon. It's five, if you count Harry's request to Mark Hudson to make the drums on Yo Dodger Blue sound like birthday. And six, if you count Harry's cover of Yoko Ono's Listen, the Snow is Falling. 
and you should. There are those call-outs to a little help from my friends and All You Need Is Love on Try. On Animal Farm, Harry interpolates a bit of Give Peace a Chance because why not? Love is the Answer takes its title from the chorus of John Lennon's Mind Games, but probably the most interesting is a cut that Harry and Hudson worked on during a session in Chicago, UCLA. Harry wrote about endings frequently, and in these days of global warming, the first verse of UCLA about how there's no New Hampshire left and the boardwalk is next, it sure sounds like Harry's singing about rising waters. In the third verse, he's singing about the end of the Beatles. There is no place like Penny Lane. There's no more yesterday. During the writing process, he goes, we should put a little musical homage to the Beatles when you do that. And we never got a chance to do it until I actually made the record this time. And all of a sudden, you know, there is no place like Penny Lane. I put the little trumpet. And then yesterday I did the why she had to go. And just massage the key. And the down. And then he goes, there's no more oyster bar. There's no more Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr, I did the... And I overdubbed the McCartney from Come Together. And and any sort of Beatles fans are going to go, yes, that's great. And that wasn't me. That was Harry Nilsson. I'd probably listened to UCLA more than a dozen times before I got hung up on this part in the fifth verse where Harry talks about what you have left when there's nothing left, when there's no more yesterday to cling to. Nothing left that's less than you from me, he sings, and I thought, wait, what's he talking about? Love, right? Love. But that less than you from me part, where did I hear that before? And then I kind of went down the rabbit hole and I found myself playing the Beatles from me to you. I don't know, maybe that's in there as a reference or a memory. UCLA is a song that seems designed to spring open memories. It sounds like we've heard it before, but we haven't. It's a new tune, a new melody. I like to call it the art of cliche, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I think that to be able to present music to people that they think they've heard, you already have a pre-sell of an emotional common ground. And when you hear Nilsson's music, you hear that upper atmosphere, that rarefied understanding about what makes a tune immediately accessible. And he's got that down in UCLA. And he plays around with a lot of words, but he does it not at the expense of sincerity, because in every turn, you sense Harry's great regret. And that's what makes this tune such a great consolation, because you're with somebody who understands what it is to grieve. To me, it's like hearing a song like that with that degree of craft is like holding a Fabergé in your hand. It's something of very precious invention. And um, to be able to also laugh at death, which is what it's all about, that really makes it a tremendously talented confection. Healing loss through melody. That was one of Harry's greatest gifts. There came a loss so great that it seemed like that gift was gone. But when he began to reconnect with it with a little help from his friends, there was consolation there. Still something left from him 
to you. Thanks for listening to episode two of Final Sessions, Harry Nilsson's Lost and Found. Next time, we'll look at how Harry's songs explored his childhood losses and dreams and how he worked to make those dreams come true. Final Sessions, Harry Nilsson's Lost and Found, was written and narrated by me, Joe Levy. Our executive producers are Brian Jones for Bang Music and Audio Post and Sandy Smolens for Audiation. The show was recorded and mixed by Nick Cipriano and Paul Vitolinch, with additional recording and editing by Sandy Smolens. If you're interested in Harry, you'll want to check out the documentary Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? I also drew on the biography Nilsson, The Life of a Singer-Songwriter by Alan Shipton. Final Sessions is a production of Warner Chapel Music and Warner Music Group. Special thanks to Lee Blackman, Brad Rosenberger, and Ashley Winton, without whom this podcast and this album wouldn't exist. To go in-depth on the songs we talked about in this episode, you'll want to listen to our companion playlist, which is linked in our show notes. Be sure to check out Harry Nilsson's final album, Lost and Found, on Omnivore Recordings when it's released November 22nd. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.